Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Chillin' in the State House. I'm Andrew Ball, State House reporter at the Topeka Capital Journal, and I'm joined by uh, Jason Tidd, my colleague and mariachi connoisseur at the Capital Journal. Jason, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I might not be a connoisseur, but I did get to listen to some pretty uh, good mariachi music earlier this week. And you got to hear that a little bit in our intro, uh, a taste of of what it is like being a state government reporter and that's because governor laura kelly for the fourth time fourth time well yes spiked spiked the football on on the food sales tax bill but it was at a a grocery store in topeka and they decided to bring a mariachi band me pueblito meat market uh over in east topeka uh she went there to sign as you said, the food sales tax bill for the fourth time. Uh, the other three times have been in Olathe, Kansas City, and Wichita. Uh, and as part of it, there was a mariachi band. And uh, the governor did not partake in singing, uh, even though she was invited to. I personally would have liked a uh, rendition of Home on the Range. But uh, instead, I got to listen to the quotes from that interview with mariachi music playing in the background, <laughs> which was quite entertaining. Well, in that laughter you hear, uh, we're going to go to him for a rendition of Home on the Range next. <laughs> John Hanna, the Associated Press. John, how are you, sir? Home, home on the range. Uh, I'm hoping listeners are sticking with us after that. <laughs> uh, true, true story. When my youngest brother got married in... 1989, maybe. Um, there was a piano bar in the hotel, and I had an I have an aunt who uh, plays the piano quite well. And when I entered the room, it was the excuse for a chorus of a, a hundred times of "Home on the Range." <laughs> we we the, our the wedding party was so loud that the cops came, and the convention of college students. Somewhere else in the hotel was jealous. <laughs> well, we are gonna. We're hoping we're gonna have that much fun discussing yes. the 2022 election, which we know we've been doing a lot of. But there's one area that we have not really touched on, and that's a very important area because all 125 seats in the Kansas House and one seat in the Kansas Senate are on the ballot this fall. And we haven't really talked about that. We talked about statewide elections. We talked about U.S. House. But we figured we would talk a bit about the legislative races as well, uh, break some of that down for you all, because that is very important. And that will determine potentially whether Republicans can maintain or even grow their supermajority in the House. 
and it will determine whether Ron Reichman Sr., uh, the lone Kansas senator up for re-election uh, because he was appointed to fill that seat, whether he will be back in Topeka. Uh, John, you have some numbers laid out in front of you. Uh, what have you been doing some research on? We, we are honored that someone would actually put some thought before coming on the podcast as to what they're going to talk about. Well, um, taking a look at uh, legislative races that are... Uh, unopposed, and there are more than 50 of them. Um, my count is 35 Republican candidate districts with only Repub- one Republican candidate and 19 with only one Democratic candidate. That's 54. And then you throw in another 10 districts where there's only a Republican primary, no other candidates, and one in Kansas City where there's only a Democratic contest and and no Republicans. So what that means is that of the uh, 100 and the the Reichman race in the Senate is contested. Um, So what that means is looking at the House, uh, Republicans have won at least 45 seats and Democrats have won at least 20. A um, lot of factors in play. That That is a fairly high number, uh, but a lot of factors in play. Uh, I have heard rumblings, particularly on the Democratic side, that it was a little difficult to recruit candidates. I, I ran into State Representative Vic Miller, um, among a handful of people who have been at the state house longer than I have, or at least his, his the start of his career in the legislature predates the start of my career as a reporter. Um, and he mentioned several factors. Some of them are personal, uh, child care, uh, the inability to take the time off work, um, that sort of thing. But he also suggested that redistricting this year, they redrew the boundaries to even out so that the popula- the districts had as equal population as possible. But his argument was that that really, really favored incumbents and that discouraged some challengers from seeking office. Well, that was a common critique of the maps, the legislative maps in both chambers uh, for both parties, that it did a really good job of entrenching incumbents and there are fewer competitive districts. But a a point of context, I think, real quick, though, Jason, um, despite what people may think, they may see lawmakers, you know, they're very, they're in the news a lot, they're making lots of headlines, so surely this must be their their job, right? This is all they do all the time, right? Not really. You know, it it's not very good pay, and it's not a full-time gig. I mean, you're in Topeka from January to May. Sometimes uh, early June. Yeah. As, <laughs> Sometimes as, into the fall. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not in on an interim committee, you know, there's not really work for you to be doing or if there's no special sessions like there were last year. Uh, and what what is the pay for a legislator, John? 67-ish I, a day, I think. 67-ish a day, and then there's expense money. I think it works out to roughly $21,000, $22,000 a year. You get, a, you get more if you're, you're a leader, a speaker, 
House Speaker, Senate President, Majority Leader, Minority Leader, that sort of thing. So if you're retired, it might be a decent retirement gig. Uh, If you have a wealthy spouse or if you are a business owner who can set your own hours and afford to take off some time during the work week to drive to Topeka, uh, if your business happens to be located close enough to Topeka. Well, and 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 obviously, the further away from Topeka you are, the more that that expense payment gets chewed up, um, in terms of you know housing and and all of that. Um, yeah, it's it's that's one of the issues that has bedeviled legislators. Oh my goodness, for. I mean, it's better than it was when, when, you know, back in the day when it was $3 a day, uh, back in the primordial times. Um, but that's been a constant complaint. But boy, if you want to get people mad, just propose a pay raise. It reminds, it reminds me, it was, uh, it was back, I'm trying to remember, it was maybe back in the 90s. And the legislature did a big study of its pay, and it wasn't very good. And they were going to, they had a commission, they farmed it out to a bipartisan commission to come up with a recommendation. And the proposal was for a 48% pay increase. And uh, it, of course, went nowhere. And what I remember was a legislator, legislative leader saying at the time saying, yeah, we knew it was going to be a little difficult, but we forgot what a headline of legislators propose 48% pay increase for themselves would look like in inch high letters. Well, there, there is deserved skepticism anytime legislators do a pay raise. I, I worked in Pennsylvania before this, which is actually a full-time legislature. And um, there was a scandal in the 2000s where they, uh, at like 1.30 a.m., did like a surprise ram through pay hike for everybody. And some laws were broken uh, in the run up to that. But also there, there is compelling research pointing out that if you want a more diverse legislature, if you want a legislature with more young people uh, of any party, that really the only way to do that is to increase pay and and. We're also talking about resources. Um, part of the reason I think that we don't have as many competitive races, frankly, at least on the Democratic Democrats finding candidates, is they don't necessarily have the resources to put candidates up in every district, particularly ones where the odds of success yeah, I mean, are if unlikely. You're, if you're talking a, a district with a Western Kansas district with three counties, all of which went for uh, former President Trump by eighty-five to ninety percent. Um, that and and the registration is, you know, sixty percent Republican and thirty-nine point one percent independent. Uh, you're probably yeah. Th- that's you know that's probably a a race you're not going to make. And on the flip side, you know, in Topeka, Kansas City, Wichita, there. There are some districts where Republicans don't put up candidates. Sure, because... Especially ones with strong incumbents. Well, and the interesting thing about that is some of the Democratic districts are in Johnson County, the ones where there are no Republicans. They're in Johnson County. And and I'm, I'm thinking, for example, Susan Ruiz and I think Jared Owsley and Brandon Woodard, for example. And, you know... 
when I started covering the legislature in the Jurassic age, you would have never had that um, because Johnson County was more Republican than it is now. But, of course, you know, there were different kinds of Republicans. There were moderate Republicans, semi-moderate Republicans, centrist Republicans, liberal Republicans, and varying degrees of conservative Republicans. And now... Well, there are more Democrats. There are still some moderate Republicans, m bigger percentage probably of conservatives. Well, and, and um, I think it, that kind of gets at the, some of the bigger factors that will be in play. You know, last election, we, I think, really saw in earnest the, the trend breakout that had been building, and that is Johnson County is now where the bulk of the Democratic caucus is from, or if not the bulk, at least a sizable and rather yeah. vocal mm. chunk of legislators. Because used to be, I, I would think it would have been Wichita and Kansas City. Kansas would have been kind of... Yeah, the, and, and the some uh, East Topeka as well in Lawrence. Um, Lawrence has has a, a good Democratic history. Um, and, and also, I mean, as a whole, to be fair, we, we're seeing two seats move... Uh, to Johnson County, I believe. And so on, on either side, I mean, we're going to have even more of a Johnson County. Uh, um, that is going to be where a lot of legislators are from, and that'll be it, an interesting impact, I think. On, on the Well, and, and, you know, sooner or later, I mean, Johnson County, you know, it, Johnson County might have so much of the state's population that the the state is in danger of tilting upwards like the Titanic. Uh, are are you invoking the Guam uh, testimony or committee hearing uh, from like twenty years ago from the Georgia representative who feared that Guam would tip over by moving the marine base? <laughs> yeah, something like that. No, I mean, Johnson County is is among the fastest growing places in Kansas. And of course, uh, over the past few decades, large swaths of western Kansas have becoming less populous. And so you have this interesting thing where you have you know the districts start with number one in southeast kansas and then go up southeast kansas and then johnson county and then wyandotte county well interspersed with those numbers you have some in i think you have a couple in the 70s and uh some in the 40s one or two in the 70s and now a couple in the hundreds because those are and you can kind of guess where the districts came from to go to Johnson County as the population shifted. And, you know, uh, again, Mr. Representative Miller always, uh, he argued during redistricting that they ought to renumber all the districts so that you could guess where somebody was from roughly by the number. But, of course, legislators didn't want to do that. The argument always is that, well, I don't want to have to change my signs. Um, how dare we inconvenience legislators? <laughs> well, and, well, they and, aren't paid enough to be able to change the signs themselves. That's well, like a those, campaign account that the campaign funds you want to be able to. I mean, if you're going to spend money on signs, you want to be able to keep reusing them. I mean, the the interesting thing is that culturally, Kansas is not, of course, a state like Pennsylvania or Ohio or uh, California or New York, where the legislature is more full-time or full-time the the culture here has always been that we don't that people don't want a full-time legislature so it's part-time um 
I mean, even back in the, I think it was the 1870s, they had an annual legislative session of 90 days, and then they went, they passed a constitutional amendment to meet every other year because the governor said, you know, the legislature was getting too active. It was, it, it, it was the, if you had annual sessions, you would just be tempted to legislate too much. Which I think Governor Laura Kelly, an argument she might make, but... Uh, well, on on the other hand, that was back in the day when state government wasn't, you know, really doing what it, some of the things it is doing now. And, I mean, you know... I mean, I, I know there are libertarians and very conservative Republicans who would love to see the government shrink to the size it roughly was in the 1870s. But. When is the first committee uh, deadline? Is it, you know, like mid-February? Because that means that lawmakers, when they come back in January, have only a month, really, in some committees to get through some of their legislation. So... It, for some issues, if you don't get to it right away in that one-month time span, and if it's not blessed by leadership or finds a different way into legislation, then you've missed well, your window. And, and as things have become more complicated in government, not that they weren't complicated before, but as things became more complicated, have become a little more complicated as the workload in some committees has increased a little bit, um, as politics has become more contentious, uh, you you have started to see, you know, everybody complains about the gut and go, um, you know, where a bill is, is a vehicle or a shell, and it's sitting somewhere, and you strip out all the contents, including the title, and put something else in and move it quickly. That, that kind of thing is happening because legislative leaders are trying to figure out how to keep things moving with a lot of stuff stuff going on and it it, it yeah it is it, it, it is a it is that tension between uh, a part-time legislature the desire for a part-time legislature and uh, the uh, ever-growing complexity of government, and when you have a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, there's a tension there because the Republican legislators want to do some oversight. And, you know, we saw this with the de- problems in the Department of Labor. Uh, really, it's very hard for uh, a committee that meets an hour or two hours a day for three or four months and then another committee that's a little different in membership meeting once a month. I mean, that's, that is in theory, not that, that it's hard. That's not a permanent aggressive oversight, even if the Republicans on it are fairly aggressive, they have to go back to their day jobs and make money to feed their families. And so it's not like a member of Congress who, or a congressional staffer who can focus on something and keep focusing on something. Well, thinking about the, and I mean, I think that underscores to some extent, though, how important the legislature is. Um, it, these races are important. I, what, what factors, Jason and John, do you think will kind of be shaping? Uh, and obviously, this will differ from district to district. 
what people run on in uh, Meade County is very different than what people will run on in Merriam. But, um, I mean, you know, uh, uh, historically, probably a little bit different than what you would see in, in a governor's race, I would imagine. Well, a little bit. I mean, the, the thing is, is that politics in the United States are becoming more and more nationalized, even even down to the legislative level. So, you know, the problem, the, the, the problem for Democrats in Kansas this year is that Joe Biden is president and he his popularity has waned. Uh, he wasn't that popular in Kansas to begin with because this is a Republican-leaning state. Inflation is as high or higher than it's been in 40 years. Um, you know, on the last podcast, uh, Jason mentioned that unemployment was low. It, it actually dropped a little bit in May, but you know, there's questions about the workforce participation rate. I mean, gas prices are up, that sort of thing. So the economy is going to be this really huge issue. And and both candidates are going to try to frame the economy to benefit their side. Right. I mean, Derek Schmidt and Republicans, the RGA, are... Uh, showing with their ads that they're really going to hit hard on inflation and right and, and blame and, Kelly. It's going to be the Biden and Kelly inflation economy, and, and that's part and of nationalizing the issue. Yeah, and by extension, then House Democrats presumably right. will get tagged with that same brush. Well, but and, but I mean, they have tried to assert some independence from Kelly at the same time, which is interesting. And, and I mean, House Democrats and Kelly both cited inflation as reasons they wanted the food sales tax cut yeah. immediately. Uh, and Kelly has really been binging the tax cut drum. Well, uh, and, and Derek Schmidt, you know, when he filed, he mentioned a proposal. He was going to have a proposal for a middle class tax cut. And, you know, Laura Kelly was pushing a $250 income tax rebate for all Kansas filers. And so, yeah, that's that's going to be part of it. I imagine in some places rising crime is going to be an issue. Um, while crime rates are still not as bad as they were 35 years ago, they are rising. Um, Although it depends where you are in the state. Yeah, it does. And it's also a national trend. It's a national Similar trend. Similar to inflation of, you know, exactly. what, what can the I governor mean, do about something that is a national trend? When Democrats, when some very, when some very liberal Democrats and, and, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement began talking about policing and the catchphrase became defund the police. Th and that meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Anything from, you know, demilitarize the police, you know, give them different training, shift the emphasis to, yeah, let's not have a police department. Um, Republicans in legislative races I think it was 2018, really, really, really hit that idea hard against Democratic opponents uh, because in a lot of places, defund the police was not a great slogan. Well, and we're talking, uh, jumping a bit to the general, but in a few cases, there are Republican primary challengers, specifically some, I hesitate to say moderate Republicans, but Republicans that had votes that are very easy to target. So like Representative John Wheeler, who voted against uh, the transgender athletes uh, ban, as well as, I believe, the Parents' Bill of Rights. He has a primary challenger. I think Representative Brad Ralph, who had a similar voting record, got a primary challenger. He's from Dodge City. Representative Wheeler is from Garden City. 
So areas that are fairly conservative, but maybe feel like their representative is not quite as conservative as they would like. Um, well, and that's an ongoing tension within the Republican Party that sure. will that will never be settled until every member Republican member of the House is very conservative or the moderates come roaring back. I mean that that's definitely. And it, if the moderates come roaring back, we'll just have more. You know, I I mean, it's it's look, that conflict, some version of that conflict has been going on since, I don't know, 1855. I mean, you know, in 1861, there were Charles Robinson Republicans and James Lane Republicans. You had the Bull Moosers in around 1912 versus the Taft Republicans. You had Fred Hall Republicans, the Eisenhower Republicans against another set of Taft Republicans. For a short while, we even had the legislative war between Republicans. And populists. Yes, that's right. Fascinating incident in 1893, and a very nice uh, exhibit on that in the State House basement that explains it. But you were not covering that. Though. No, I was not. I I arrived. You started uh, a couple years later. Right? I actually a couple months later. Yes. Um. Well, and Jason also primary challenge on the Democratic side in House District 37 home of one representative Aaron Coleman uh there is a three-way primary what's going on out there who who is representative Coleman because that name might sound familiar to people so Aaron Coleman is the uh Kansas City Kansas area Democrat uh who he he is a young man who has gotten 20 isn't he 20 or 21 he's he's cracked 21 he can legally drink now Uh, he he has had some run-ins with the law uh, accused of being abusive toward a girlfriend while in a hot tub. Uh, he was arrested for an alleged DUI. But uh, never charged for DUI. Right. Uh, because apparently, we I don't think we ever got the test results, but uh, apparently they determined that there were no drugs or alcohol well, and, in his and system. Then for but a he while, was speeding when he got pulled. For over. a while, there was a battery charge that later... Was was it a re- diversion that he got? I think yeah. it was a diversion where he got into a fight with his brother. I think it was at Thanksgiving. It was over religion. Yes. Which well, and and you know there were back when he was young, even younger, a young teenager. There were allegations of threats and uh, against, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, a school. And I think a revenge porn case. Yeah, he, he's been banned from the Kansas Department of Labor premises. I think for being a little too aggressive, maybe, and and trying to get some answers on on Kadal things, we should say he's getting mental health treatment, so that might be part of the equation as well. But he he has gotten headlines, and not always for the right reasons. And House Democrats wanted to essentially kick him out of the legislature. Uh, House Republicans didn't quite go along with it the way that House Democrats wanted to, uh, and part of it was house republicans wanted to wait and see what happened with his court cases well and and you know when you're talking about expelling a member of the legislature and only the house and senate can expel their members you know the issue is do you expel somebody for conduct that occurred before they took office well, and we, the conclusion was no we should say also the DUI and uh, let uh, the DUI that came to nothing and the battery were after he was elected. Yes. And they reconvened there was a complaint filed and they reconvened the select committee to investigate. 
the charges kind of being taken care of means the committee has winded down, I believe, is yeah. not expected to take that up. But because of these issues, wound, wound down. it, it Sorry meant that he was kind of a persona non grata within the Democratic Party. Yeah, which no meant, committee assignments, yeah, for example. Which meant, means that it's difficult to represent your constituents, especially when floor amendments are not very favorably looked upon. Uh, and And... In terms of his politics, he's probably one of the more – he's probably one of the most liberal members of the House. I think that's probably safe to say. I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, supports – I mean, not only does he support legalization of marijuana, I think he had a bill to legalize psychedelic mushrooms, um, you know, very much in favor of single-payer government-run health care system. He has a cardboard cutout of Bernie Sanders in his office, I think, yes. to give people an idea of And I know, think I think he, uh, when he was running in 2020, I think he, uh, I think he addressed one crowd as uh, something like greeting socialist comrades or something like that. He considers himself a democratic socialist, I think, and he's got a little, um, a rose on his Twitter, uh, Rose icon on his Twitter thing, which I think is kind of associated with that. But thinking back to 2020, uh, when Aaron Colton was first elected, some of these issues uh, with him as a candidate were out in the public sphere, but he uh, did the legwork to talk with voters. And his opponent at the time was an older member of the legislature who uh, had been there for several years and didn't do a whole lot in terms of campaigning. Well, now he will dispute that. Um, but but sources, Democratic sources have said pretty consistently yeah, he, he got outworked. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Coleman, there is no doubt that he did a lot of door-to-door work and he talked about these really liberal progressive ideas in a district that liked them. And even one of his harshest critics said, you know, if you talk to this kid for five minutes, you think he's great. You know, it's only, you know, her argument was it was only much longer exposure that questions begin to arise about him. Go ahead. Uh, Well, uh the response now has just been let let the voters decide in November. Uh, well, I guess now in August. In August primary, and November, yeah. yes. If they want Aaron but, Coleman but, but to still is, be their what, representative, sure. And what if the voters say, "Yeah, we do"? What does the Democratic leadership here do if the voters, for a second time, knowing all of this, say, "On balance, we like where he stands on the issues," and yeah. We're going to reelect him. What do the Democratic leaders in the House do? Well, I think there's not a whole lot they can do. Well, I mean, but do they give him committee assignments? Do they, you know, say, okay? It'll be something I guess that will be something to watch uh, in, in the elections. Well, maybe this will be like a kind of an interesting point to, to end on because Jason was talking about like work, and, and I'm curious. Do you think that state legislative races, because door knocking, retail politics are very much a part of things. We've talked about the nationalization, however, of these races. Is it is it still true that this kind of face-to-face interaction with voters does play a, a big role and can really, you know, 
shape races, uh, particularly in a primary where, you know, turnout is not as high. Yes. I mean, you know, you look at races, for example, in Johnson County and, and Topeka and, you know, uh, Senate, state Senate races in Topeka, you do get some advertising on television. You do get radio, you get a lot of mail, but in, in a legislative race, particularly a house race, that door to that door-to-door thing is is really important and that's something democrats found out in 2020 during the pandemic they were very afraid of just for health reasons of going door-to-door and so they really eased off that out of concerns public health concerns and republicans did less easing off and republicans that helped republicans um and so yes um you can win a race, a legislative race, with less money than your opponent if you're really aggressive and out there and knocking doors. And there are some candidates who feel so uh, – who favor door knocking so much they feel it is such an important part of their job and part of the campaign cycle that – they are still doing it, even though they don't have any primary or general election opponent. I think. Well, I, I, I think am... Brandon Woodard in uh, Johnson County, Nick Hoheisel in Wichita, are two examples of that. A Democrat and a Republican. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine there's a, a better way to get a sense of what's on your constituents' minds. Even if they're going to vote for you and they like you, they might complain about some stuff and give you a heads up on a problem that's out there. I mean, you know, and they may even identify some things that, you know, nobody knew was a problem, you know, just because they've they've encountered it. Well, I do think there is a, even in a digital age, Meeting someone face to face does leave a lasting impression. I mean, obviously, it has to be a positive impression. Yeah. But you know, it does. I mean, I think just all of us in our personal lives can kind of think of that dynamic taking place, and it 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 seems as true in politics as well, particularly in a state like Kansas, where you know, particularly if you're an outsider or you're challenging an incumbent, it's a way to make an impression in a state that really values those kinds of there's there's another value to that as well and because this is an age where americans have far less trust than they used to in government institutions like the legislature you know when ronald reagan ran against jimmy carter there was a debate that people remember are you better off than you were four years ago but there's been a lot of political science analysis of that debate that said one of the key things about that debate was that it made people who weren't going to vote for Reagan, and there really weren't that, sometimes it seems like there weren't that many of them, but it made people who weren't going to vote for Ronald Reagan feel better about him. They no longer were as afraid of him being president as they used to be. And and I wonder if door knocking, if you're a Republican and you go door knocking and you meet people who are not going to vote for you, whether those people end up feeling better because you tried. Door knocking has also been a major aspect of the anti-abortion amendment campaign sure. uh, going door to door here. Sure. And that is also on the primary election day, though it's technically a special election uh, primaries. You have to be a registered Republican or Democrat to vote in. Uh, 
if you are unaffiliated, you can vote in the special election on the uh, value yeah. them both, oh, yeah. the so-called value them both amendment. The 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 uh, the signs are starting to pop up like dandelions in my yard. Yeah, it's funny because like half the people in my neighborhood have a vote yes sign, and the other half have a vote no sign. And well, and they're getting. I mean, you know, the value them both message. Uh, to use their terminology, you know, their their messaging is that it's very unified. It's the purple sign with the silhouette of the the mother holding the baby and and all of that. Whereas the the messages on the other side are are more. Uh, diverse i mean there's one that keep kansas a free state i saw a sign you know keep your ha- keep your hands off my rights um there's some that just simply say vote no vote no yes so that that is that is interesting um well a little bit of foreshadowing because i think next week or in the weeks to come we will have a whole episode dedicated to uh, breaking down the abortion amendment debate, hopefully with a slightly less male uh, panel, but uh, stay tuned for that as well. If you want to read our coverage on legislative politics, statewide races, the abortion amendment, uh, concrete falling off the Polk Quincy viaduct, we yeah, have it all. Talk, talk about a scary, scary thing there. Oh, they've closed off the streets below it, so... And it's, I know, but it's that's near where my dry cleaner is. <laughs> well, if John has slightly less dry clean shirts, we will know why. Yes. Uh, you can read all about it, though, except John's dry clean shirts at <laughs> cjonline.com. You can follow us on Twitter at cjonline or like us on Facebook. Uh, we are we are on all the social media platforms. And Jason is on all the social media platforms, too. Jason, tell them all about it. Uh. The only one I really use for work is uh, my Twitter, Jason at underscore Tid. Occasionally, I'll share a story on Facebook. Uh, very, very rarely, I'll put something on TikTok. But which, which I, it's more likely that you'd see a video of my chihuahua. I was going to say, which platform has the most dog content? Uh, possibly Twitter, just because I use that the most. Okay, good to know. I am at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L, and John... Where can they find your work? Well, on Twitter, uh, well, let's start with the website. Will, will they see your turtles? Well, I, I, I'm not that act, uh, uh, I'm not that uh, active on Instagram or Tic Tac, but um, <laughs> on Get Off My Lawn. You have a yes. video with, is, is it a parakeet at the Topeka Zoo? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, there were parakeets. At, I, I don't think they were technically parakeets. I think they were some other kind of parakeet-like bird. But the, the, the Kansas native version of a parakeet. Well, and then I did post like a turtle video on my, 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 my uh, non-binary turtle. We, we, Lord knows how you tell the difference between a male turtle and a female turtle. There is a way I've forgotten. <laughs> so, uh, we, we just, we just use they, them pronouns. Um, anyway, your, your articles, <laughs> <laughs> my articles are at www.apnews.com backslash. We're doing the hand movement. Kansas with a capital K. And your Twitter? Uh, APJD Hannah. Excellent. And if you want back episodes for your big summer road trip, 
uh, Chillin' the State House. We have them. Uh, we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. And I promise, guys, I will try and remember to post it on cjonline.com. Uh, I'm, I'm working on it. It's been a busy couple weeks, but we will have that as well. Uh, it is Father's Day. Well, I guess depending on when you listen to it, we have just passed Father's Day. I want to quickly say a shout out to my dad, who is one of the avid listeners of Chillin' in the State House. Love you, Dad, and uh, stay chill out there. And Juneteenth. And Juneteenth, yes. Juneteenth. Which yes. might be when this podcast drops um, yes. a, a very worthwhile celebration. We encourage you to go out and enjoy the many uh, Juneteenth celebrations in and around Topeka. And if you're somebody who had not heard of Juneteenth before this podcast or before it became a federal holiday last year, maybe uh, read up on it. A good, a good yes, it's a, it's a significant civil rights moment in 1865. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Father's Day. Jason, John. Thank you, Andrew. It's been, Stay chill. It's been a good time as always. Stay chill out there in the heat. And we will see you all next week. Same time, same place. <laughs>